Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast. I'm Marla Spivak, the research manager for the RISE program and a research fellow at Building State Capability at the Center for International Development at the Harvard Kennedy School. Today, I'm speaking with Yamini Iyer, the president and chief executive of the Center for Policy Research in Delhi, and a researcher with the RISE India team and RISE political economy team. In this episode, we discuss Yamini's new book for RISE, Rewriting the Grammar of the Education System, Delhi's Education Reform, a tale of creative resistance and creative disruption. This book documents the introduction of a new package of education reforms in Delhi public schools and what we can learn about how education systems evolve and improve from the challenges the reforms encountered and the progress they were able to make. Some of my takeaways from our conversation were about the importance of empathy and understanding for those that we're working with, of understanding that everyone is embedded in a larger system that's conditioning their options for actions and to create change, and of the importance of building consensus throughout the system around the goals of reform efforts. Welcome, Yamini. We are so delighted to have you on the RISE podcast today and really excited to speak about your new book. So thank you so much for being here to talk about this new work. Thank you. Thank you, Marla. It's a a pleasure to be here and really excited to have this conversation. So as you you might know, the tagline of our podcast is share your stories, not your standard deviations. And this new book that you've just put out really lends itself to that motto because it tells such a rich story of these reforms in Delhi that took place that your team was able to sort of observe and document and learn from. So I wonder if you could start us off by sharing some of the highlights of that story. Sure, Marla. You know, we had the privilege of being able to document a set of reforms that were underway as they were unfolding in a city in which we actually live. Now, how many researchers get to make their own homes, their field sites? And what was really interesting for us, so, you know, the city of Delhi had been through a series of political upheavals in the years preceding the start of our study. One important one was Delhi was home for this big anti-corruption movement that took place between 2011 and 12 in India. Protests happened, you know, a stone's throw away from where we live. And this sort of coalition of civil society over time then morphed into a fledgling political party that gave itself the name Aam Admi Party. That's the party of the ordinary person, the ordinary man, ordinary woman, and then stood for election. And Lo and behold, broke ground in the city. They won the election for the city-state, which I think took place in early 2014. It then got, the party got caught, as did the country, in a second big political upheaval because we had a big national election which created a new uh, political regime in the seat of power in Delhi. And then this fledgling political party that had won unexpectedly, or they didn't fully win the election, but they got a very large number of seats ousting old established political 
political parties. And for a host of other complicated political reasons, we had a re-election soon after in 2015. And here was this upstart political party that beat the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party that had just come to power in Delhi, in their own city, and came to power with a thumping majority. So much so that there was zero opposition. There were two opposition seats in the entire assembly, unheard of. So we were all part of this moment uh, because we live here. And suddenly we began to see various posters being put up all across the city announcing new reforms on school education. Very unusual for India. I've been observing education, studying education reforms in different parts of the country. Things were happening, but I don't recall a single city in India where I saw, you know, the big advertising billboards telling me that there were some reforms going on in my city. And then I used to put on the radio on my way to work. And in the middle of, you know, Bollywood pop songs and a peppy DJ, suddenly I would hear the voice of the deputy chief minister who had also been given the education portfolio as education minister, telling us things that were music to my ears at some level, because I had spent many years working closely with Pratham and Asar and had been part of this entire discourse on the challenge of learning outcomes in Indian schools, uh, uh, the, the, the negative consequences of the overambitious curriculum that we had been engaging with Lant and all of you on were things that were well part of our understanding on what the challenge with education was. But our big challenge was that none of our policymakers was willing to echo this understanding at all. And suddenly the Deputy Chief Minister of Delhi is on the radio saying, we've done a short survey and we recognize that a large number of students in Standard 6 can barely read a Standard 6 textbook, forget a Standard 6 textbook textbook, they can barely read or write, and they've moved from class to class to class progressing, but are simply not learning, and we need to do something about this. It really was dramatic in its moment because uh, this kind of language or framing of the challenge of education had not been articulated that much, and here it was being articulated in our city. And it just so happened that having got excited about this through a series of conversations, we were then found ourselves in a conversation with the reformers, some of the reformers themselves. And they were really keen for us to document what was going on in schools because they felt that, you know, any kind of process of change is complex, it's chaotic, lots of things are happening. And having regular feedback to understand what's being responded to in schools would be important. So here we were, a once in a lifetime opportunity to document in real time change that was going on. What did we find? Of course, having worked on policy in India, I knew that grand ideas and big framings that come from the top trickle down in very complex ways at the cutting edge where change is actually meant to happen. So we didn't walk in expecting things to be, you know, exactly as was in the imagination of the reformers. In fact, that was part of what we wanted to study. How do these changes get interpreted? Where are the disruptions? Where is the resistance? Where is the pushback? Where is the acceptance and how this happens? But what we found was really quite in its own way, silently dramatic in the sense that if you were to look to see whether the transformation was taking place in classrooms and you just looked at what was happening between the teachers and the students, you would walk away saying this is yet another one of those famous flailing state narratives of the Indian state, great ideas and nothing's actually happening on the ground. 
But if you sat and listened to the teachers and engage in conversation with the school actors, and if you sat and listened to what was happening in the trainings as the teachers were being prepared for this whole exercise, one started understanding that change was actually underway in its own subtle complexity. One of the things that we found is that teachers who are in the Indian system in particular, and I think many systems across the world, education systems across the globe, measure their understanding of the classroom from the framework of past percent maximizing past percentages and ensuring, therefore, that they are teaching those parts of the classroom that are closest to curriculum readiness. So the ability of the child to pass the exam is an important measure. And completing the syllabus to make everybody exam ready is a critical element of the entire story. Now, when the reforms were implemented, essentially teachers were given the flexibility to not be obsessed with curriculum and instead focus on what children knew and got them as close to curriculum level expectation as possible. To begin with, teachers were completely puzzled. To me, that was an inter interesting insight because I thought that once you remove the shackles, uh, or at least once you create a perception that the shackles can be removed, that creativity would unfold. Of course, it didn't, because after all, they grew up in the system. So when they were told that there is no syllabus, that, or rather that there is flexibility around the syllabus, that they can teach differentially, differential teaching was a framework, teachers were puzzled. Um, and so were we, because we couldn't understand why the teachers were puzzled. But on digging deeper, we realized that the puzzle came from being embedded in a system that believed that this was what the classroom was supposed to do. It's what we call in our book, the classroom consensus. And by the way, parents were uh, deeply embedded in that same uh, consensus as well. And I'll come to that in a moment. And what was interesting over time is not that the consensus broke and a new consensus formed. It is that teachers themselves began to recognize the possibility of engaging with children in a way that actually allows them to move from wherever they are to where the curriculum wants without the shackles of exams. So teachers would talk about good children versus bad children. Teachers were unhappy about the idea of marking children as close to curriculum, distance from the curriculum. But all those conversations together created an environment where in the staff room suddenly teachers were talking about what their children knew and didn't know outside of just their ability to pass the exam or not. Now that's a massive shift in a system that has embedded in thinking in a certain way. Parents, like all of us, and uh, I noticed after this that I too was a victim of the same challenge that the parents I was observing were. So let me explain this with this story. At the early parts of our study, we were sitting in the headmaster's room on the day of a parent-teacher meeting. That parent-teacher meeting was also a very momentous part of this whole reform because, again, this was the first time that the, everyone from the top leadership of the political party to uh, the school teacher had been mobilized into inviting parents to come for this parent-teacher meeting, and given how much social distance there is in government schools between parents and teachers, this actual act of a parent-teacher meeting was very significant. And it coincided with a baseline survey that was done in schools, ASAR-like, to try and get a sense of what level children were at um, in terms of basic reading, writing, arithmetic. And an attempt was being made along on the basis of that to reorganize children according to their learning levels so that the teachers would be able to do this differential teaching. In some ways, that was the crux of part of the reform that we were keen to understand. And parents came barging into the headmaster's room saying, how could you do this? 
how could you test our children without telling us in advance? So the children couldn't prepare. And then, of course, they won't score well. And then you're taking decisions on our child. This is completely against the rules of what a classroom should be. And, you know, it made me realize that we are, as parents, we too are very much part of that classroom consensus. Then I thought back to how excited I get when my primary school going daughter comes back from her school with two stars versus one star or zero star. And the stars do matter to how I'm thinking about her education education progress. So I'm part of the problem too. So so it was insightful to me to recognize how deeply embedded parents too are part of this consensus. And that's important because when we talk about participation in the education system, we're usually talking about it from the point of view of the system not creating spaces for parental participation and direct accountability. And whilst that remains very crucial to what makes for an effective, accountable, functional education system, the framework of that consensus is actually part of it. Because if parents are going to ask for a certain kind of accountability, then of course the system is going to be geared towards that. So that was the second key insight. And again, a recognition that continued engagement between parents and teachers in a framework that at least loosens the shackles of curriculum, expectations, syllabus completion, parts percentages, opens up the space for rewriting that consensus, rewriting the grammar of the classroom, which is why I titled the book that. The third Third really important insight for us through observing this whole change was how much systems are embedded in a particular vocabulary of their own. In the Indian system of bureaucracy, that vocabulary is articulated through an endless stream of circulars laced with bureaucracies and how messages are, are communicated from top leadership down to the school. And we had this database of a large number of circulars. And it is actually through the language of the circular, the written word, that reforms are understood and implemented. And staying as sacrosanct to that written word is how accountability is understood in our bureaucratic system. And that system translates into the school and it shapes how reform unfold. So unless we build reforms that actually try to reshape that language and the way in which ideas translate in their everydayness to those who are tasked with implementing it, we will always perhaps find ourselves caught in the chakra view, as they say in India, or in the web of the challenge of the flailing state. So we learned, we learned that reforms are not about immediate change. It's about the subtle disruptions that take place. And that's about seeding ideas, engaging with them and allowing them to unfold. And we learned that you have to understand the grammar of the system in which change is being brought in in order to ensure that the values of the change are well understood. And I think our studies on bureaucracy, our uh, frameworks of dis debating accountability, our frameworks for reforms, particularly deep technocratic reforms, sometimes forget these complexities in which reforms unfold. Wow, that was such a fascinating overview um, and touching on all of the key themes. I sort of have follow-up questions almost on like each of those main points that you asked. Maybe first to come to the thing you spoke about most recently, which to me was one of the fascinating and I imagine time-consuming parts of the research that you did, which was understanding these circulars, this component of the language of the state. You know, this podcast is not meant to be very researchy and technical, but I think folks will be interested in just how did you do that component of the research? Um, and maybe if you could talk a little bit more about what were some things that emerged about the way that the language of the state evolved? as you were tracking these circulars over the course of time as the reform unfolded? 
Well, you know, anyone who has ever encountered the Indian state will be familiar with this phrase of orders and circulars in any way or form. As researchers, when we encounter the state, one of the big challenges is that you have to get a quote-unquote permission letter, especially if you're researching parts of the state, uh, before the state open up. And it's not that the permission letters are hard to get, but they come in the form of a circular, in the form of a file. And in fact, even the start of our study took a lot longer than we had hoped, simply because the file had to go from desk to desk before it finally saw the light of day and the final signature gave us the space to be able to actually undertake the study. So we were well aware of the centrality of paper in the context of the Indian bureaucracy. Amita Bhavaskar, a sociologist who studied the Indian states sort of described it once as a state that has this passion for paper. And this passion for paper has been deployed in India in really innovative ways. Uh, so I'm going to digress here for a second, but just to explain how central the idea of the paper is or the rules, the files, the circulars are to the everyday functioning of the Indian bureaucracy. India has also been home to one of the world's most radical freedom of information movements, where in fact, the whole framework of freedom of information was reframed as a right to information. And the laws were passed as a consequence of a long social movement where civil society mobilized to push for building a right to information law. But one of the reasons why information was framed in India as a right is because everything that the state does is always located somewhere on paper. And this has a lot to do with our colonial history. And I talk a little bit about, uh, uh, briefly touch upon that in the book. And anyone who's interested in knowing more should definitely read uh, anthropologist Matthew Hull's work, who sort of traced the colonial, our Indian bureaucracy's obsession with paper back to our colonial history. But this paper is really powerful because anything that's on paper becomes an embedded part of the state. It's a constitutive feature of the state. And the right to information essentially required you to put on paper an application to access papers of the state. And it was through those papers that citizens were empowered to hold the state accountable. So papers have been very central to the functioning of the Indian state. And the circular sort of embodies that. But what we were surprised by as we entered the schools is how often the circular became part and parcel of the discussion with teachers. So nothing would move, starting from our ability to enter the school gates to the schools actioning any of the actions that they were required to undertake on account of the reforms without receiving the circular. And quite literally, hours and hours would be spent by the school trying to interpret what the circulars were saying. I mean, there was one very amusing moment where one of the, I think it was the teachers that we spoke to, said, well, you know, we spent hours and hours trying to figure out whether the circular is saying and or or. Um, and we can't make up our minds and we're not going to move until we don't know this because, you know, we have to be true to whatever it is that the circular said. So we then realized that in order to understand the translation of the reform into what was happening in schools, we needed to get to the heart of the circular. Luckily, because technology has digitized a lot of things, there is a database that we were able to access of the government from which we pull the circulars. And we actually had a remarkably large number of circulars that we found were issued in the period of the reforms. So what we did do was that we 
categorize the circulars across different categories of information or actions that they were requiring of schools. And this included examination-related activities, data collection-related activities, a whole range of things that teachers were supposed to do. And then we narrowed them down to a set of circulars around the particular reforms that we were studying. And we went through a subset of them to identify words and phrases that we would hear that we found uh, were coming up repeatedly. And then we did a search to get a sense of what the language of the circulars was all about. And one of the things that really struck us was how much the languages, after all, bureaucratic language and rule-bound bureaucracies are essentially about issuing orders. These circulars are called orders in the grammar of the state as well. So they were used very much as carrot and sticks, ordering schools to do various things. And so you could get a good sense of, you know, the messages were around inspections, the messages were around the kind of penalties that would be imposed on schools. Um, They were mostly around threats that, you know, the the language was very threatening. If you don't do X, then the school will be penalized or the individual concerned will be penalized. So these these are circulars that are framed in a particular way. And as a consequence, schools and school teachers did take these very, very seriously. So one of the people we interviewed said, you know, schools are conditioned to work from circulars only. And so I literally spend all my day moving from circular to circular, following the instructions in an unquestioning manner. What this does is it sort of deepens a culture of responsiveness to orders rather than engaging with the task at hand. And so coming back to the classroom, suddenly when the very school teachers who've been embedded in a a world uh, where their daily work is guided by the tyranny of circulars, they are told that there's flexibility, that you are encouraged to do things your way, that you can do quote unquote differential teaching. They find themselves completely puzzled because they've been working in a culture where performance is directly related to your ability to be responsive to whatever is clearly asked of you in that circular. And if you deviate from what the circular is ordering to do, chances are that you may get into a little bit of trouble. So all in all, it sort of creates a culture of responsiveness to orders and a sort of passiveness to what you do, rather than a culture of being an active agent where the classroom is mine and I have a task at hand or a goal to accomplish inside the classroom. Yeah, that's Fascinating. And I just think that the the analysis you did to look at the circulars themselves to understand how a little bit of change, you know, might have happened over time is also a really interesting component of the study. And and sort of building on that, you know, these circulars are part of the mode of accountability for the system, right? They're a big way in which at Rise we would talk about sort of delegation or, you know, how bureaucrats and then, you know, heads of school and teachers at the front line are supposed to know what they're meant to be doing. And so these circulars were sort of an insight into a piece of that. But I think there are a lot of other elements of accountability and how accountability works that this reform sort of touched on or or came up against. You were speaking about the role that parents also play in accountability. So I was just wondering, you know, what in what ways throughout the reform process do you think that the mode of accountability stayed the same? And were there any changes that you were able to see? Was it able to to shift the needle or was the accountability that exists just sort of so entrenched that, um, you know, it wasn't able to shift as much over over the reform period? So there are two things here. 
consistent messaging from the political leadership through the three-year period that we tracked. So the top of the system spoke to this whole process from the perspective of motivation. I mean, there's a lot of attempt in the language that was deployed, in the ways in which attempts were being made to present the teacher as a very central actor at the heart of the education system. 5th of September in India is celebrated as Teacher's Day and various schools, governments, it's a celebratory occasion. The Delhi government celebrated it by converting a small award ceremony into a very high profile thing and you drive around the city and see teachers' faces on you know bus stop billboards and and so on, all around the attempt to generate, you know, accountability by trying to shift the account to you to draw on Land's framing of account versus accounting of accountability in a system that is very entrenched in an accounting framework of accountability. Even the introduction of phrases like differential teaching, which is a big shift from classroom is about completing syllabus and maximizing pass percentages, were all an attempt to shift the metric of performance and the metric of accountability in a very entrenched system. But in an entrenched system, change does not happen overnight. And we found that those aspects of the system that the school engaged with the most, the circulars, which define what the school is supposed to do. There's a mid-level of administrator that the school encounters the most. That's a conduit actually between the school and the higher level of policymaking. And in some ways, the culture of the school itself all collectively still cohered around an accountability that was very much an accounting accountability. Have you met a certain set of metrics? And this left teachers uh, somewhat confused. And I don't think that over the three-year period that we followed schools, we saw this transform in any significant way. What we did see was that teachers became exposed to the possibilities of change in ways that shifted not norms, but their own discussions and dialogues amongst themselves, which I think is a starting point of shifting norms of accountability. In the middle of the first year of the introduction of this reforms, when teachers were deeply skeptical and frankly a bit unhappy about what was going on because they felt that this was yet another burden that teachers were going to have to carry on them, Suddenly, the chief minister and the deputy chief minister announced a two-month-long reading campaign that would end on the 14th of November, again, which is celebrated nationally in India as Children's Day. And this was a campaign to ensure that all children in government schools, secondary government schools in Delhi could quote-unquote read. And they said that there was complete flexibility. So this was something that had to be done outside of the classroom in the morning assembly or during the lunch break or after school, where teachers had the flexibility to you know, identify students who needed extra remedial training and some sort of teaching learning support was given to them through this period. But all of this was to happen outside of the classroom. Now, teachers were deeply skeptical about the possibility of this. They said that we understand that a child has come into the sixth grade and cannot read, possibly sometimes even at basic grade three or grade four level. But we don't believe that in a half an hour class, anything can change. And yet the minute they found themselves freed from the shackles of the classroom outside of it, they began engaging with children differently. And they themselves said that this was actually a very, very effective thing that happened. And they did feel that they were able to improve learning for children. So 
teachers became exposed to possibilities teachers became exposed to also thinking about the students that they faced that they confronted in class in terms of where they were relative to what the curriculum was expecting them to do and recognizing that they did require different kinds of input and that is to me this foundation of a shift in the norms of accountability now ultimately the devil will lie in where we end up which is a second phase of reforms which hopefully will unfold at some point but i'm having this conversation with you against the backdrop of nearly 2 years of school closures so we'll probably be in a very different world if or when i hope schools open in india but i think a lot of the big questions of how embedded and deep these changes will be will rest on whether we are able to fundamentally shift the metric of measurement inside the classroom and that has to do with the ability of shifting a little bit the assessment system and there was and in fact there continues to be a very deep discussion within the delhi government about what that could look like a lot of which has been disrupted thanks to covid that's such a great segue into the next question I wanted to ask, which was one thing we've been talking a lot about within the RISE team lately is about the importance of purpose in creating change in education systems, the need for alignment around a clear purpose. And I think to go back to the start of, of your story about this reform, that was something that was very clearly set out. A new political party comes in, it has total control of government, it makes education a clear political priority and has a, you know, not just education in general, but foundational reading specifically putting that as a main purpose. But that enough isn't a guarantee for a home run of success. There were many other obstacles, even once you have purpose at the center, many other obstacles present themselves to reform. So I'm just wondering if reflecting on the experience of what was achieved in this reform and what still is yet to be achieved and hopefully will be if the system can get back into a more normal mode of, of operation and continue its progress. What are some of the scaffolds around purpose that you think are necessary for systems to, to create transformation in addition to having that core? What, what's the scaffolding around it that can help make for successful change? So I think one of the things your question is making me think that maybe in some revision, this needs to be articulated a little bit more in, in our work as well, that defining purpose and then building consensus around that purpose are two slightly different things. I think we are better in doing the former and we don't give enough thought to the latter. And that's also been the challenge with Delhi too. So even though purpose was to move the system away from, as Deputy Chief Minister Manisha Shodhya himself has said in various speeches, and I've quoted them in the book, I don't remember exactly the phrasing, but I think he, he sort of once described the classroom as being a victim to the textbook, to the syllabus, to the examination. So the articulation of the problem and recognition that the purpose of reform is to break this shackles that have locked the classroom in were very clear. But in building consensus around the reforms, it all got very complicated and diluted on many occasions. I referenced this in one of the chapters as we described the unfolding of the reforms, even when the big Chinoti reform was announced, the big classroom reform was announced. It was pitched as a reform that was about ensuring that students would be better prepared for the class 10 exam, which is the big sort of high start of the big high stakes exam in, our, in the Indian schooling system. And in a way, from a reformer's point of view, that's necessary because you need to build consensus around the reform. And, the, in the, and because the classroom consensus is so closely linked to getting through that high stakes exam, that's the only way you'll mobilize. The other really interesting moment for me through this period of study, and like I said, one of the sort of interesting things about 
living in your field site in some ways, I suddenly noticed that my colleagues uh, and friends and peer group in Delhi began talking about the political party's reforms when it hit the headlines that government schools had started performing better in these high stakes exams than private schools. Up until then, no one was really convinced about what was going on, mostly because in elite peer groups, private school education is dominant. And while people saw the billboards, etc., that was often dismissed as just political noise rather than action. But it was the exam results shift. And by the way, those exam results shifts, in my opinion, had very little to do with the reforms themselves. I think there were other factors at play there. But it was those examination results that suddenly brought about a deep legitimacy towards what the political party at the reforming actors were doing. And that's how the narrative really solidified of this is a political party that is committed to education reform and to change reform. So the real challenge is governments are also reflections of the context within which they are located. And purpose gets defined in that interplay between state and society. Shifting that purpose means building a new consensus. And that is in a consensus that has to be built both around the actors in the system, but also stakeholders and most importantly in education, parents in the system. Do we have the ability to have this dialogue? And how do you have it in very unequal education systems? The Indian education system is deeply unequal, partly because you are dealing at one level with children, say like mine, who are coming from fourth or fifth generation learners, with children who are coming from first generation learners. And the nature of input, the kind of education they get, the kind of exposure they have are all very different. So how do we build a societal conversation around purpose is a very critical question, which I think is at the heart of some of the challenges we are witnessing in our education systems. Yamini, this discussion has been so interesting and I wish that we had more time, but we're coming up on the end. And so I want to conclude with the question that we always end our podcast on. And I'm wondering what's one thing that you wished more people knew about the Indian education system or just about education systems in general? Well, I think the one thing that we tend to forget is how much the teacher's perception or understanding of what makes for a good classroom is shaped by the societal perception of what an education system should deliver. And I think that one of the challenges that a lot of the quote unquote good teachers that we say, you know, there there is, and especially in the Indian education system, we know from all our work on accountability, teachers are for a large number, permanent government school teachers, they get a significantly high pay relative to private school teachers. Lant and I have done some work on this back in the day. And, you know, even showing up is sometimes asking for too much from them. So there's no doubt that there's a very fundamental accountability challenge here. But teachers' perception of what they are inside the classroom is actually at the heart even of some of these deeply egregious, unaccountable behaviors like not showing up, like teacher absenteeism. And to me, I came away feeling a lot more empathetic towards 
the dilemmas that teachers confront than I was at the start of the study, where I saw teachers as part of the problem of a system which created perverse incentives where absenteeism was the norm and not teaching well was the norm. And I realized that that not teaching well has a lot to do with the classroom consensus that has not been shaped by the individual teacher or the individual school. It has been shaped by all of us collectively. So what does it mean to move a system that is committed to maximizing parse percentages and rote learning towards recognizing the importance of basic foundational learning? It's not an easy question to answer. It's perhaps a little bit easier when you're talking about things like learning, you know, basically word recognition, paragraph comprehension, basic foundational learning. It gets a little harder when you start saying, what are life skills? What is conceptual learning? What are life skills? And I think that in many ways, the Delhi government now is grappling with precisely these questions. Don't forget, I think your listeners may not know this, and we should have said it up front, but these reforms took place in secondary schools, not in primary schools. So a lot of the challenge that the reformers are now grappling with is, you know, how do you create entrepreneurship? How do you give life skills? Can we experiment with an entrepreneurial curriculum, with a happiness curriculum? Some of this is interesting. I mean, again, I had originally dismissed it, but as I spent more time in schools, I realized that it's also about saying what is the kind of learning that you can give to students so that they have a better leg up in what is a very harsh and difficult world because most of the children that go to government schools come from very, very poor and difficult backgrounds. So more understanding of that and thinking around how to build that societal consensus is important. I think networks like RICE are so crucial because we are building and generating a large body of work that is actually engaging with this question. Yeah, absolutely. Three things I heard you mention that I think are so important and the key takeaways I'm going to have from this conversation are needing to have more empathy and understanding for where the people that we're working with and learning from are coming from, the fact that we're all embedded in a system, right? And that's conditioning what we're doing and what our options are and and how we're thinking about our role and how important and difficult it is to build any sort of societal consensus when you're dealing with really diverse, complicated communities, countries, cities, but how crucial that is to making progress. So Yamini, I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation. Thank you so much for your book and for coming to talk with us about it today. And I hope everyone now we've piqued their interest and that folks will go and and read the full book and, and learn even more about this story because it's really such an important one we're so lucky to have. Thank you. Thank you, Marla. And thank you to the RICE team. This wouldn't have been possible without all of you and your constant encouragement and support made sure that we remember to get this done. So really appreciate it and looking forward to more conversations with all of you on it. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.